You know, if you go to work thinking that the employees and the shareholders and the communities you serve are number one, then you're going to do the right thing. And if you have the courage to focus on what needs to be done, then you've got a, you've got a fighting chance. It's not a slam dunk. everyone. Welcome along to People Building Businesses, the podcast from YBF Ventures. My name is Jason Lim. I'm the chief of staff here at YBF. And on the podcast, I'll be talking to some of the smartest business people in Australia and beyond to find out how they built their businesses. You can subscribe to People Building Businesses in all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Our guest today is Farley Blackman, the CEO of YBF Ventures. Farley has worked in senior management roles in huge companies like GE, Motorola, and BP, even becoming one of the top 100 employees within BP and one of their global heads of functions. Pretty impressive for a company that employs close to 100,000 people all up. He's also got an entrepreneurial streak, previously founding his own consultancy, Stratagem Corporation, in 1999, and then founding Far Black Limited after BP, where he focused his endeavors on entrepreneurial efforts in the more artful and creative industries, such as restoring and operating the Lunenburg Opera House, running an art gallery, and focusing his efforts on nature conservation. Pretty cool story. He took over as CEO of YBF in October 2017, and has overseen our growth since then, and we reached a big milestone in July, opening our new space in Sydney. If you haven't checked that out yet, head over to our website. I'm really excited for this. Farley brings a lot of experience, interesting stories, and experience both running large companies and small startups. So let's talk to Farley. Farley, welcome to the podcast. Jason, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. First off, I'd like to call out the obvious. We obviously work together in the same company, so you might be rehashing some of the stories that you've already told me. Uh, you might be sharing some of the stuff that you've told the team. But for the listeners out there, I think um, it's going to be really interesting to hear some of the stories that you've previously shared. So calling that out first and foremost of all. Sure, and I think it's a challenge for you to try to get some new stories out, isn't it? Well, we'll try having some fun. Good. <laughs> Look forward to it. So first off, um, I ask my podcast guests the same question every single time. Tell us more about your upbringing. Where did you grow up? Talk to us about your parents. Um, I guess we want to picture into your upbringing and what's made Farley the Farley he is today. So I was born in New York City to parents that were in the arts uh, area. So my mom was a ballerina and a actress on Broadway and my dad was an art director and set designer on Broadway then TV and then big big movies uh, as a lot of people did back then and probably still do today folks get kind of tired with the New York scene at some point in their lives and they move to a small rural state of Vermont or New Hampshire or Maine to uh, change life um, so early I guess early on for me I moved to Vermont um, with my family, obviously, and I grew up in a very rural setting in Vermont while having parents that were kind of bridging rural Vermont, which is a state in, in New England, um, in the U.S., and the big city of New York and the arts and entertainment that came with it. So I think it's that kind of eclectic background with 
a view to both big city and at lights and action with, uh, I guess, running through the woods and going fishing and playing baseball with neighborhood kids. That's kind of led me to, to kind of have a life of, of two sides, I, I'll say. That's really cool. And growing up, did you ever imagine that you would be running businesses instead of being in the arts like your parents? Gosh, I'm, I'm not sure I really even thought about it, to be honest, looking back. I, I don't think I ever really had a, a formal plan of exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so I, I'm not sure the arts were ever in the cards for me. I'm really more of a, uh, probably an introvert in most cases than an extrovert. So uh, the business side of things probably is more natural. So growing up, you sort of grew up in this household full of arts, um, full of culture, full of the parents in the entertainment industry. What was the switch for you where you kind of went, okay, you know, this is the path I want to take. Um, it's not going to be the same as my parents. Was there ever a moment where you sort of went, okay, business is for me and you want to focus on that rather than being in the arts? Yeah, probably. You know, it's funny, actually. The one time I was in the arts professionally, I would say, was probably the switch to business. So right. I ended up on a set of a movie some time ago um, visiting my father, and I got offered a job by the producer of, and the director of the film, and I said yes, and I really had no idea what I was doing, uh, but I became a department head on a film called What About Bob?, which starred Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfus. Just a pretty big film. That's yeah, no big you know, deal. Right, right place, right time, and the willingness to say yes, which I think is probably something that's defined my career. Um, so I said yes, and I think what I learned from that was that I really liked the business aspect of the entertainment industry um, rather than the entertainment aspect of it. So I think that was probably the switching point or maybe it was a focus point in my career where I said, really, I like putting deals together. I like business. I like getting stuff done. Um, I like, you know, making things and achieving things. Um, and, you know, through, through business was the lens that I decided to focus on. That's really cool. And was this before you went into university or after you went to university? Yeah, it was post-undergrad and pre-grad. Yep. And actually, it's funny, I, I was thinking that maybe I wanted to stay on the business side of entertainment, but at the same time, I decided I should maybe go back to grad school and take school a bit more seriously. I didn't do so in an undergrad. I probably focused more on things um, than grades and, and learning. Um, and I applied to school. I got in, and I was actually about to start my MBA when I got a call from one of the big uh, production houses to do another film. You know, films pay quite a bit of money. They pay well, and certainly where I was in, in my age, the, the money would have been nice. I decided at that point, though, that, you know what, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to learn. I'm going to try to live up to the potential that I think I have and tested, and I ended up saying no to the film and yes to grad school. And I think at that point... I really started focusing on, on business and, and doing things differently. That's really interesting because in this day and age, you kind of see a lot of people advocating for more work experience over, I guess, educational experience, but you took the opposite route. If you had advice for someone currently at that crossroads today, what would that advice be for them? Listen, every 
everybody is different. I think for me, and it goes back to the point that I didn't take undergrad too seriously. Mm. You know, it was more about social learning for me and um, kind of growing up from a more human standpoint than from an academic standpoint. So for me, it was important to go back to school and focus and uh, see if I was even partially as smart as I thought I was. I think for others that, you know, probably had a more balanced approach in their younger years, I would say work, um, a work focus or work experience is invaluable. Thanks for that. Um, for listeners out there, take that advice to heart. Farley's done pretty well for himself. Um, so you went through an undergrad in finance and your postgrad was in IT. Um, after that, your first job, if I'm, well, actually, if you don't count your, your, uh, your entertainment job, one of your first jobs out of university was in various executive roles with GE uh, through functions like corporate, IT, and sourcing. Um, you've previously told me that you even rose to the ranks of GE and got to the point where you ran one of their largest outsourcing fun- functions in India. For someone who's just got out of university, how did you rise to the ranks of GE so quickly? Yeah, listen, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think everybody's road is different and I would certainly not suggest that everybody looks at someone and decides that what they've done is the right way to go. I think you, you take pieces of people's experiences and you figure out what they did right in any one point. For me, you know, I actually started off at a small telecoms company, um, right after grad school. And I decided that I would spend a couple years there learning as much as I could and then I would move. And the GE opportunity came up quickly, and I said yes. So I think one of the things I would say is, especially when you're younger, say yes. Say yes a lot. Uh, look for opportunities to add value and make sure that those opportunities are seen adding value as well. Uh, I think that's kind of the number one advice I would give. Uh, I think having some level of domain expertise or domain um, focus throughout your career certainly helps you later on. I did not take that approach. I took an eclectic approach. And what I did was anything that was the biggest challenge or the most interesting or could add the most value was where I went. It has worked for me. I'm not sure that works for everybody. And like I said, I think folks really need to be true to themselves understand themselves and then leverage their strengths while trying to supplement their weaknesses. How did you find the GE experience being in such a a large company like that? Um, Especially for someone who has never been in such a large organization before. Was it eye-opening for you or shocking, I guess? Yeah. So I, listen, I went from a small town. um, I grew up in a really small town. So there was two of us in fourth grade, as an example, yeah. me, me and Debbie Johnson, um, <laughs> you know, and I, I went to a small company when I left grad school. So G was certainly amazing. And what was exciting for me was just the amount of opportunity, the amount of learning, the amount of incredibly bright people. And, you know, again, that works for some people and it doesn't. I, soaked it all in and I just I just loved every minute of GE it wasn't easy mm-hmm. uh, my last year at GE I think I spent four days at home the rest of the time was on the road wow. so 
you know, that's ultimately why I left GE. It was time to do something different. But, you know, being able to have different opportunities present themselves and being open to saying yes, I think made my experience of GE invaluable. That's great. And before we move on, what was the, what, what would you say was the highlight of your time in GE? Any interesting stories to share with the listeners out there? Yeah, gosh, I'm, I'm not sure. I think the amazing thing about GE during the time that I was with GE is you could really make your career if you were willing to step up, if you were willing to show value, if you were willing to think big and then deliver bigger, hmm. you were noticed. So it was, I'd say, the truest form of meritocracy that I've seen anywhere. To me, that was amazing. And because I said yes, and fortunately I was able to deliver, I ended up in some pretty, you know, unique opportunities. Um, certainly one that comes to mind was working with the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government on trying to figure out how commerce could drive peace across the uh, Middle East, uh, specifically in Gaza um, and, and the West Bank. Not an easy thing, but to find yourself in that position in your, in your late 20s, uh, meeting with the heads of both governments was, was pretty remarkable. That's pretty cool. That's a great, great story. Um, after GE, you left and then started your own company, Stratagem. What was Stratagem all about and what was your catalyst for starting your own company right after GE? Yeah, listen, I think the catalyst was the reality that I spent four days at home. Yeah. Uh, I was still single. I was a bit burnt out. Um, I had had five different roles in five years and you know I wouldn't trade a day of it, but it was also time to do something else. Um, that combined with that it was the Y2K era, it was also mm. the dot-com era. Uh, you could pretty much write a, a note on a napkin and start a business pretty easily. So it just seemed like the cards were aligned to do that. So I, I guess I got off the corporate rat race and entered a different kind of race as a, you know, trying to run a small company. So your first time starting a company... What were the early days of that like? Was it scary for you? Yeah, maybe not scary enough. Um, <laughs> you know, we did really well. We ended up with customers quite quickly, and we ended up with seven figures of revenue in, in the first year, which, wow. you know, back then was was saying something. I was able to hire some amazing people. Um, with that said, the biggest mistake I made was that I didn't, you know, make notes on that napkin I talked about earlier and I didn't go out to Silicon Valley or somewhere and raise money. So we grew that business through organic growth. And the lesson that I learned in that was that growth is extremely expensive. Um, and growth actually is what kills most small companies and it caused us to, to struggle. Um, so as we grew and we went from a million dollars in revenue to $2 million in revenue, we started to need more capital in order to grow further. And by the time we did want to raise money, you know, everything had kind of crashed around us. The NASDAQ had crashed and, um, and the world was in a very different place. So take us back to the time where you started noticing the, the bubble popping in the dot-com era. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs these days haven't lived through that. Mm. What was it like when that bubble burst for your company and for the companies around you? can just imagine that scene of pandemonium and, and shock as that happened. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure I saw the full brunt of it. I, I decided to base the company in Vermont, which, again, is a small rural state in, in New England. Uh, 
you know, so you're, it, it's not an obvious place for a, for a tech company to be. We were a, a company that focused on, on offshore outsourcing. So helping bigger companies leverage lower cost centers for work. Um, at the time, uh, there was really not enough folks doing IT in the U.S. So um, not only could you access lower cost individuals, mm. but you could actually access a talent um, that you needed, which is actually more important. So sometimes um, whether the talents, you know, 20, 30, 40% less is, is a lot less important than actually having the talent when you need to drive a business. Um, so we had, we had good customers, but how, how the downturn affected us was really the ability to raise money at the time. Um, and I decided to actually go back to the corporate world and leave the company to my employees which they carried on for almost two years, um, you know, before the company, they decided to close the company. Right. And um, that's when the Motorola opportunity came up and you it stepped did. in as the deputy CIO. Um, I noticed here that you were with Motorola for, for a short amount of time. I was. Yeah. What was your role within Motorola? What, what did you see? Was this around the time where Motorola started to um, rethink mobile phones? And what was your role in all of that? Yeah, I joined Motorola. It was actually an ex-colleague of mine from GE that had just joined as a CIO of the mobile phone division or the cellular division, as we call it in the U.S. Yep. And uh, he brought me in as his heir apparent. Um, unfortunately, he got removed from the company soon after I came, which uh, didn't really bode well for someone to be brought in by an individual that leaves. Right. Um, but I stuck it out for, I think, almost a year and a half. Uh, we ended up consolidating a lot of the Motorola offices, which were really important. Um, the company went from about 150,000 people down to 50,000 people in a short period of time. Um, the company had always been a very creative company, and the engineering mm -hmm. side of Motorola was certainly impressive. But some of the things that the engineers developed, such as digital technology, were decided that uh, there wasn't a business case for them, um, which obviously we know is a, an unfortunate decision. Color screens were another one. So there was, a, there was a number of challenges in the world at that time. There was a number of environmental challenges. Motorola had its own challenges. And then I, as an heir apparent to someone that was let go, was an even you know, uh, bigger challenge or certainly a, a more direct one personally. So I, I think I learned a lot at Motorola. Um, comp every company is different, whether it's a small company or a big company, companies are different. And where GE was a command and control company um, and a company where everybody was quite focused and knew what they needed to do, Motorola was much more of a consensus-driven one and one that was going through quite a bit of turmoil at the time. I wouldn't trade a day of it again because, you know, you learn through challenges. It's, it's easy to win um, or it's easy to kind of get complacent when you're winning is a better way to say it. Um, when things start getting rough and you need to start to be innovative. And I think through the challenges we had at Stratagem, the company that I started, and the challenges at Motorola, I think that set me up really quite well for success later on. And Farley... You mentioned that Motorola had issues with innovating at that point in time. Are the reasons for that failure to innovate still pervasive in the corporates that you see today? Um, with a reflection of the times, or is this an issue that a corporate will always have to grapple with, the need for innovation and the need to figure out how to innovate properly? Yeah, it's interesting. I think Motorola's challenge at the time, and listen, I was there for uh, a 
a blink of an eye in, in the history of Motorola. So I'm certainly not the best person to talk about Motorola. I will say that I think the issue with Motorola was less around innovation and more around governance. Um, it was less, it was more about understanding when there are innovative solutions and there are opportunities to do things different. How do you allow those innovations into your business decisions? And I think that's the failure point for Motorola at the time. Um, to your original question, do companies struggle with innovation? Absolutely. Uh, you know, if you think about a ball rolling down a hill, there is a massive momentum. If you think about a larger ball rolling down a hill, the momentum is there. It's hard to stop. And what starts momentum is all the things in the past that have made a company successful. Innovation, by definition, is all the things that aren't thought of yet and are the future. So sometimes you actually need to stop that ball or you need mm -hmm. to change directions or you need to reverse it completely. That's hard to do and it's harder to do the bigger you get. And why is that? It, it, it's just you have a machine behind you. So, you know, as a, as a small company, I mean, Jason, you and I are in a company of, you know, a dozen people at yep. this point. You know that sometimes when you want to make a change, how difficult it can be with 12 people, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine now if it's 1,200 people. Imagine if it's 12,000 people. Imagine if it's 120,000 people. Um, you have to win the hearts and minds of individuals, um, and you have to you have to convince an organization to change. Um, not easy. And I guess you took all that learning from your various roles to what was what is the I guess one of the culminations of and one of the the bright spots of your career, which is 13 years at BP. And I'm sure you've held too many roles to, to name on this podcast, but some of the things you looked after include global sourcing, indirect procurement, Six Sigma, sustainable cost management, and you eventually became the head of one of their global functions in commercial performance improvement. 13 years is a lot of time, and um, I think that gets to the crux of what this podcast is all about, people building businesses. So I don't know where to start, but could you take us through your journey throughout BP, how you ended up, where you ended up, and just the yeah the general journey throughout that whole organization. You know, I think I've been really fortunate to find my way into some really great companies. Certainly, GE allowed me opportunities to fix things that were broken or to create functionality where it didn't exist. BP was the same thing. So there was, I'd say, enlightened leadership at both GE and BP. Extremely different cultures, but leadership that. Uh, allowed individuals to create um, in a way. So although I'm now in a small business, uh, mm -hmm. I was really creating new businesses within those. So an, an entrepreneur, if you will. Um, I don't know where to start with BP. I mean, it was a, it was a great 13 years. Um, I think the, the highlights certainly were around having the ability to have great, great teams and great individuals and do some really, really big things. I mean, we made massive impacts um, in a short period of time. Uh, that's extremely rewarding. And you mentioned once that you were sort of the counterculture to BP's culture. Um, you know, I, I know you personally, uh, I work with you, and you're not the kind of person who rocks up in suits uh, who wears a tie. You're the kind of person who wears a sweater, uh, who, who speaks his mind, and who thinks differently. How did you integrate that culture? How, do you how did you integrate that Vermont arts Farley culture 
into such an organization like VP? Was it difficult? Yeah, I, it's extremely difficult, and I don't think you ever fully integrated. And and I think that's actually part of what is the secret sauce. So if I was to fully integrate it, or if I was to be fully integrated into BP or into GE, then it's hard to drive the change. Uh, you know, in, in some way you need to be the irritant. So if you think about an oyster, an oyster doesn't grow a pearl unless there's an irritant, unless there's a piece of sand. So how do you become the irritant? But more importantly, how do you become the irritant in a way that's positive? And those things might sound like complete opposites, but I don't think they are. So one of the analogies I use, if you think about a, a big company as a massive cog that has teeth and is spinning slowly, which big companies do, and you think about change in small companies as small cogs that are moving really, really quick, okay? If you put those two cogs together, what happens? Mm. The small cog, all the teeth come off and you end up with a round circle and you end up with the cogs and nothing happens. There's no traction, right? So it's all the cogs that are in between, which are the kind of micro interventions, the things you need to do, the values of the company, all the things that allow you to take the fast moving intervention or change that you need and at least try to get some of that into the into the big cog. So it's thinking through all the pieces of something that really is the only way to drive change um, in a successful and hopefully in a sustainable way. And do Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a really interesting and really, really great analogy. I think the struggle for a lot of people trying to be that entrepreneur in this day and age is they're afraid of standing out. I mean, in Australia, we have what's known as tall poppy syndrome, where you know if you see someone doing something cool, something interesting, they get chopped down. Any advice for people um, navigating those waters as they're innovating within their organization? I think you've got to decide what's important for you. Mm. I think you you need to be willing to take a virtual punch to the gut and get a virtual black eye. I think you need to be willing to wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, I'm excited for this day. It's not going to be easy. And you need to look in the mirror at the end of the night and say, wow, we accomplished a lot. I think if you're looking for thanks, um, you're going to have a hard road. Um, if you're an agent of change, if you're an entrepreneur in a big company, if you're an innovator, I think you need to be willing to get fired. And that sounds mm. pretty harsh. But you know, if you go to work thinking that the employees and the shareholders and the communities you serve are number one, then you're going to do the right thing. And if you have the courage to focus on what needs to be done, then you've got a you've got a fighting chance. It's not a slam dunk. That's great, and um, I think you hit it, the nail on the head there. Courage, I think courage is missing from a lot of things these days, and it's hard to to drive that courage. One more question before we move away from your time at BP. You were obviously the counterculture within BP's culture, but you also ran a very large team within BP. Mm -hmm. How did you infuse that culture within your team? Because it must have been difficult for people who grew up within the system with a certain way of working and then to have someone immediately come in and just shake things up. Yeah, listen, I, I think there are very, very few people that could have a 40-year career at a company, at any company, and constantly be driving change. I had a 13-year career at BP. I could argue that that was a long time for someone that 
is focused on intervention. Um, some things are easy to do, some things are not. I, I would say that making sure that the values of the team and the values of the company are aligned regardless of if you're driving change is really, really important. Um, that's something that's absolutely mandatory. With that said, we ended up hiring mostly external people to drive the change. Right. Um, and, and, and that was necessary. At a company like GE, at least the GE that I knew, um, you could hire internally because everybody was so focused on what is the next step change for the company? How do we continuously improve the business? Um, in BP, it's a different industry. It's a different way of working. Some of those things were, were not part of the DNA of the company. That's really cool. Um, so after your days in BP, you sort of went back to your roots in the arts, in the culture, and you started your another company, Far Black Limited. Could you just, for the listeners out there, tell tell us about why you started Far Black and some of the projects that Far Black was involved in? Yeah, you know, Far Black really was just a uh, kind of a holding company of ideas for for a long time. Um, it enabled. It enabled us to think through things and do things differently. I wouldn't say it was going back to my roots. I was, I would say it was doing a couple of things. One is um, kind of right brain versus left brain. It's kind of finding that balance and equilibrium and exercising both sides of the mind. Uh, I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it, quite honestly, was giving back. So, you know, I worked for very large companies. I had roles that some folks... Uh, would not want to take, whether that's, you know, focused on, on global sourcing or whether that's working for big industrial companies or whether that's working in oil and gas. Um, so I wanted to make sure that, you know, much like my focus on balance and thinking about big, big, bold actions and sustainability in the corporate world and how do you take a bold thing and make it last for a long time, I wanted to find that, that balance for myself. So, you know, giving back to the environment, giving back to the arts. Um, and I guess honoring my parents' heritage was something that just seemed natural. I, again, I'm not sure it was really a well-thought-out uh, plan, but it was a needed break and um, a needed different focus after 13 years of traveling around the world. And how did you first hear about YBF as you were running Far Black? And what made you decide to, to eventually take up the role of CEO of of YBF, which um, for the listeners out there was on the complete opposite side of the world with Far Black operating mostly in the UK and Nova Scotia um, and YBF being here in Australia. Well, fortunately, I met one of the founders back in 2009 at Stanford. We both attended the executive program and we stayed in touch over the years. Um, in some of my visits to Australia for other work, I would come by and see what York Butter Factory was up to and usually was for all of about five minutes and maybe some ribs and a drink, um, but stayed in touch. And as York Butter Factory, you know, started to change directions, brought in an external chairman and decided it needed an externally focused CEO, um, I kind of got interested. And, you know, after kind of after two and a half years in in Nova Scotia, and after 15 years in London, spending time between both, we were both my wife and I were up for a change. So it just it just seemed to align. Um, I had a lot of fun uh, in the arts, um, having you know restored a, a heritage opera house, and having started an art gallery, and having you know, published a magazine. Uh, all fun things. A lot I would of say. Cool stuff. I, 
all cool stuff. I would say not very um, economically rewarding. <laughs> uh, you know, a a good a good drain of cash. I'd say the art gallery was actually quite successful and commercially successful, but you know, it, it was time to do do bigger things and and probably go back to some more of my business r- roots. Listen, Australia is not a hard place to want to come to, so uh, that was that was the easiest of the decisions. That's amazing. And um, as you were deciding whether or not to take the role with YBF, did you have any prior experience or understanding of co-working spaces and innovation hubs? Have you seen that previously in your career? No, I certainly haven't. Uh, you know, at BP, we had you know a ton of offices spread around the world. Uh, so I hadn't experienced uh, this, you know, I guess where there was direct experience was when I used to run procurement for BP, I looked after property and facilities for the company. So, you know, uh, you know, what we do here part is certainly partially a, a property and facilities play having run the opera house, having, having organized and hosted massive events and having run basically a massive space, I guess gave me some, indirect if not direct experience but no this is this was a new space and uh, probably uh, a bit surprising you know my first day here yeah and um you know go- going back to that again your, your first day here i've been in ybf since 2012 and i can confidently say that ybf's growth only really really started um the moment you took reigns as ceo of the company and that was quite a shift for the company um, i think you know we were one of the first ybf was one of the first co-working spaces in australia one of the first ones to do corporate partnerships, but we never really scaled to the extent that we are today. So as you came into the company and as you looked at where the YBF of the past was, what what was your headspace at in terms of what needed to happen for the company to grow and to scale? Because I could, I could probably say that we weren't ready for that growth when you came in, but we certainly are now. So how, do you, how did you bridge that gap for the company? Yeah, you know, listen, let me start off and talk about what was so exciting and what was done so well at YBF. So YBF started in 2011 with with an idea that really hadn't made its way to Australia, but was certainly chugging along in the U.S. and accelerating quickly. So, you know, Darcy and Stu, the two founders, uh, started a very small fund of $3 million and needed a place to host uh, their investments. It was that simple. Um you know, Darcy, Stu, and and yourself, Jason, took the company to a place where not only was there a focus on the startups and helping them to scale, but on helping corporates to innovate. Um, it was done out of a very, very small space, and I would say it was done in, in an ad hoc manner. Um, that works for a certain amount of time, and then it needs to change. So I YBF's no different. The YBF today is no different than any other company. Um, companies go through cycles where they kind of accelerate, which York Butter Factory did, and then they plateau and potentially decline unless an intervention is made. This goes back to my earlier comments around interventions and, and the need for them. Uh, what York Butter Factory was no different. So when I came in in 2017, the ideas and the foundation were all there, but they were plateauing and, and in, in reality they were declining, all right? And it needed a, needed a bit of an intervention. Um, it needed a bit of a catalyst for change. It probably needed a bit of an irritant. Um, yeah. And I, I, guess, uh, I guess I served that role. You know, we made some tough calls very, very early on. So I came in here in mid-2017. 
Um, we had a, a space that was really neat and cool back in 2011 and 12 and 13, but the world had caught up and surpassed it. So we needed to find another space. Um, like most small companies, you know, capital is the biggest challenge. And as I said, I think early in my days with Stratagem, if you don't have cash and capital to grow, growth actually kills you and, 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 and you suffer for it. York Butter Factory at the time was in that place. So we had to make some courageous and brave choices, which we did. We acquired a business called Team Square, um, which enabled us to grow our footprint by uh, six times, to grow our membership by 10x. Um, it enabled us to approach the government and secure a grant that was in the works. Um, and it set the tone for a different company and therefore the name from York Butter Factory to YBF. You know, our, our recent uh, takeover, um, our recent, you know, ownership of the formerly known Tyro Fintech Hub is the, is the example of that. So 2018 was about growing tremendously, creating a new YBF uh, with a bigger footprint, with a bigger impact, restarting corporate innovation. Um, focusing our message to be really clear that we are here to help startups scale, scale up, succeed, and corporates to innovate. And all we do is around creating the eco ecosystem that enables that. Our move to Sydney this year formalizes that even more. And if we can have, you know, one big announcement each year for the next several years, I think we'll be on a good track. If we can do two, even better. Even better. Uh, one of the things that I think you've, you've really encapsulated that really well, one of the things that you've done for YBF is that you've, you're a problem solver, essentially. You get down to the root of things. You find a way to, to solve problems, whether the problem is growth or whether the problem is culture. You somehow manage to distill that into something that's really manageable for a company, regardless of its size, whether it's a BP or a YBF. How do you approach that problem-solving methodology uh, in your head, yeah. Listen, I, I'm not. I'm not sure there's a specific formula for it. I, I think you just need to cut through the crap uh, pretty quickly. I think there, if you think there is a sacred cow or a sacred part of the business, whether it be big or small, then you're going to start to ring fence what you can and can't do. Mm. Um, you need to quickly identify where the problem areas, and and you need to make you need to be decisive. You need to make the choices quickly. And uh, and get into action. Um, I think the, it's too easy not to. Yeah, and one of the things you do really well is you're incredibly transparent as well. I think anyone who's dealt with you will know that you're extremely straight to the point. But I'm sure that also shapes people the wrong way sometimes. So it takes a bit of adapting for a lot of people to get used to. But it's has that always been your approach to things? Yeah, listen, I am absolutely transparent. I would say um, it's a strength but it's also something that can be quite um, challenging. So, listen, I think you and I had some challenges yeah. in the beginning, right? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure you were ready for the transparency that I brought on. Was I, Jason? Uh, no, I was not. There you go, transparency in action right here on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah, so, I, you know, I, I think what transparency does, and I don't pretend that I'm perfect at it at all, uh, but I think what transparency does is it gets the real issue on the table really, really quickly, and then it allows people to solve for it. Um, 
it's not always comfortable, but it's in that discomfort that a breakthrough can be made. And that, that's my philosophy. I, you know, I thought about this long and hard. As I, as I went through BP, um, my transparency is not a natural fit to a company like BP. I mean, BP started off as a British, um, part of the British government, right? Um, and for folks that have spent time in Britain, it is a reserved society. Um, I'm not a reserved individual. Uh, so I had to think through how do I want to drive the changes that, that I want to and what am I willing to fail at and what am I willing to succeed at? And at the end of the day, I thought it's really important for me to be authentic to who I am as a person. And one of those things is putting it all on the table for discussion. Um, it means I need to listen as well. And I, you know, I, I think I do okay at that. I could probably do better. But getting issues on the table so that we can all try to find a solution for it allows us, allows companies to move at pace and tackle the real issues. I mean, one of the things I use um, as an analogy as well is if you're an alcoholic and you don't admit you're an alcoholic, you have no chance of fixing that disease, okay? And it's when you admit you have a problem that you can actually go after and solve the problem. Too many companies don't admit they have a problem. And why do you think people struggle to be transparent? Because it sounds logical when you're explaining why you're transparent, but in the real world, a lot of people still struggle with being honest, with being open, especially in a startup world sometimes where you kind of have to put on this facade of success and growth. It's hard to sometimes admit that you're struggling or to admit that there are issues on the table. Why do you think people struggle through that? I don't know. Listen, if, if, you, if you live in a two-dimensional world, it's, it's impossible to know there's a third dimension. And I think for me, I'm transparent. So it's kind of hard for me to get my head around that people aren't. Um, now, with that said, I'm certainly smart enough to realize that most people are not as transparent as I am. Um, I guess I've got a bit of a you know, a personal risk profile that allows me to be transparent and allows um, the positives to come from that, but also allows the negatives to come from that. It's not for everybody. Um, you know, a, a lot of people need the safety and security mm. of the status quo. What gets me up in the morning is actually what's beyond the status quo. What could something be like? You know, talking a big game and self-promoting is absolutely boring to me. Um, I would much rather have our customers, um, have our partners talk about our successes than us. And I think the only way you allow that to happen is by being transparent, figuring out what's broken, helping to fix it, and winning. And I think winning is great. Let's let other people talk about us winning rather than us. That's awesome. And uh, great advice for listeners out there as well. One of the things that YBF does is YBF describes it itself as an innovation hub that's beyond co-working. What does beyond co-working mean? And where does beyond co-working fit within the broader market, whether it's co-working or corporate innovation? Yeah, listen, I think the future will be the judge whether there is a beyond co-working and whether our view of the world is true or not. Our belief is based on the following, that early on, um, there was a single relationship between tenants and landlords. That's the traditional way a business worked in a space. 
um, Regis came around and created version one, if you will, which was the, which was the serviced office approach. It allowed the variableization of office space. Uh, we work, we like to consider as version two, all right? And they are focused on co-working. And what is co-working? It's really around community. Um, we believe WeWork's approach is a passive community. I think they would probably differ with my definition of that. But, you know, the belief that uh, there's a kombucha tap and that kombucha tap creates magic is probably a bit of a fallacy, and I think it'll change over time. Version three of co-working, if you will, and what we like to call beyond co-working, is instead of a passive community, it's an active community. How do you actively encourage things to happen? How do you facilitate and co-create? Um, how do you curate uh, conversations? How do you actively put businesses together rather than believing that grabbing a beer around a common kitchen uh, is enough? We don't believe it's enough. We staff at multiple levels of a co-working space. Um, I'll go back to what I said earlier, is that we are here to help startups scale, scale up, succeed, and corporates to innovate. You only do that by actively managing the relationships, the interactions, uh, broadening the ecosystem well beyond the walls. We have 3,100 square, square meters of space here in Melbourne. Um, that's interesting. What's really more interesting for us is 3,100 square meters of space allows us to have 75 companies that call YBF home, allows us to have 400 members that come in on a daily basis or certainly call us home on a membership level, and allows us to have an ecosystem of 49,000 people. So our growth strategy, imagine if everything was 10x that. So instead of 3,100 square meters of space, again, the least important number here, what if it was 31,000 square meters of space, which is about 330,000 square feet of space, mouthful. Um, imagine if we're able to look after 750 companies, 4,000 members in an ecosystem of 500,000 people that interact with and help us help startups to scale, scale-ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate. That's really the goal of YBF, and that's beyond co-working. And when you say active community, what do you mean by active community? What role does YBF play to really catalyze those interactions within the community? It's a variety of things. It's not one thing. It can be really as light as doing whatever other, every other co-working space does, which is to provide... Um, some passive ways for people to interact, okay? The difference we do, in, even in those passive uh, events, if you will, is that because we have more people, we are able to be there present and actually make, um, not make, but uh, encourage people to talk to each other, okay? Rather than just putting 10 people in a room and walking away, we put 10 people in a room, but there's two or three of us in addition to those 10. That makes a big difference. Um, if we... If we know that a startup is looking for a raise, then we will start to make introductions to investors, um, to other companies that can help on the journey. We will take a founder that has never done a raise before and make sure they are able to talk to one, two, three, or 10 other founders that actually have done a series A, B, or C. So it's those active activities. It requires a bigger staff. Um, but it 
fundamentally provides a value add that doesn't exist elsewhere. That's cool. And was this what you en envisaged yourself doing when you first took over the reins of YBF? No, I, I guess not. Um, you know, I probably didn't get a accurate picture of what YBF or York Butter Factory was. Um, so we had to quickly, I would say, relaunch, uh, which we've done. And thanks to you, I mean, you're, you're, uh, you're key to this. You've been here since 2012. You provide a bridge to the history and the foundations and everything that has uh, made York Butter Factory, now YBF, um, a known commodity and a respected business. And it's thanks to all the new people, Joe behind the cameras here is one, that actually are taking us to the place we need to be. But gosh, it'd be boring if that wasn't the case, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I guess that's a good segue into, into my next question. You mentioned, you know, that this isn't just uh, a one-person effort. This is a team effort. And having run teams across large organizations and startups, what are some of the common ingredients to creating a high-performing team? Yeah, listen, high-performing teams are essential. I think if you don't have them, you're going to always, always struggle. So I think being clear on what the expectations are, so I think it starts at the recruiting process, to be honest. I, I think you need to be honest, and we use the word transparent again, but you need to be transparent. I, I think selling someone on something that is a is only a dream doesn't help. So and I'll use my BP days when we were going after really big challenges and problems in the company, and we were the countercultural element to it, my recruiting pitch sounded more like a recruiting pitch for the U.S. Marine Corps. Um, you know, the U.S. Marine Corps, for those that don't know it, I had a had a um, an advertisement that said the few, the proud, the Marine, the Marines, um, and it had a bunch of people working really hard and pictures of you know boot camp and all these things that were difficult. And when I recruited people, I said, "Listen, this is going to be tough." Um, if you are up for a challenge, you're the right folks. If you are able to live with ambiguity, then great. If you want a structured, standard, status quo role, this isn't for you. If you want an easy life, this isn't for you. If you want to do something exceptional and you want to be exceptional, then come to us. I, I'd say that's the same thing in the startup world. If folks aren't willing to step up, stand out, uh, do things differently, um, they're not they're not right for most companies, um, especially ones that are trying to scale, um, trying to grow, trying to innovate. Uh, and that's the culture that I've always looked to build. So, you know, building a high performance team starts with those expectations uh, in the recruiting cycle. I think where we've fallen down and, uh, you know, whether that be at YBF or BP or any other company is when those expectations either aren't set where they're not heard. Um, it just doesn't set up the right uh, solution. I think once folks are recruited in, then, you know, it's a balance. It's a balance of uh, a bit of tough love um, with certainly acknowledging wins while at the same time always looking to improve and think better. Uh, I think for me, because I am as transparent as I am and that can be seen as being quite tough, uh, it's really important for me to surround myself with with balanced leaders. And I th think that's the case for anybody else. So if, if you're on the other side and you are um, a much more quiet leader, a more thoughtful leader, uh, someone that is more risk adverse, 
then you need to surround yourself with team members that are willing to take the risk or take the hell on your behalf. Um, so it's finding that balance in teams. And I think, you know, I think we're start, I think we're in a good place with YBF. Uh, the, the team has changed completely since I took over. Uh, I mean, Jason, you're here. Um, I am. <laughs> and, uh, and the rest of the team is new. Um, we're, we're now 55% female. Uh, we are, we're actually 11 people. Our, our 12th person is on sabbatical right now. Um, out of those are 11 or 12 people, depending on how you measure it. We're, we come from eight countries. We speak five languages and we're 50 to 55% female, whether you're counting Darcy or not, who's in the Amazon right now. <laughs> and, um, you know, YBF is obviously going through a period of growth right now. YBF is now in Sydney. Um, could you talk to us a bit about the Sydney, the move into Sydney and what that means for YBF? Yeah, Sydney's always been important for us. So growth is important and it goes back to my earlier comments that it's not about the square meterage or the square footage. It's not about the number of floors. It's not about the number of sites, um, directly, but indirectly, all those things enable us to look after a larger number of companies, a larger number of members, and create a larger ecosystem in order to drive success, to drive scale, and to drive innovation. Sydney was always going to be important to us. Uh, we did a pilot uh, earlier on. Um, we learned a lot in that pilot. And, you know, in 2019, we were ready to do it ourselves, which is uh, why we waited and why we executed upon the Sydney um, the Sydney space we have now. Sydney gives us a 38% increase in size and therefore a 38% increase in number of companies we look after. We have a long-term strategy. I guess, again, time will be the, the judge whether we are able to execute on it or not. But we really want to create a triangle, if you will, between Australia, New Zealand, and generally Southeast Asia. Okay, and that Southeast Asia is a really big uh, geography, but there are benefits to all of those areas um, individually, and there are massive benefits to creating an ecosystem that bridges all of them. So our goal is to be in Melbourne and Sydney, potentially places like Brisbane. Uh, we really want to be in, Aus in uh, New Zealand, Auckland, and likely Wellington, and whether it's Singapore, KL, uh, Jakarta, um, somewhere in Vietnam, Thailand, um, all of those things or some of them in individually, you know, that is the future strategy of this company. That's great. And, um, you know, before we wrap up, I have one last question for you, Farley. Sure. If, if there was, if someone wanted to learn more about YBF, if it was a startup looking to scale or a scale up looking to succeed or a corporate looking to innovate, or even just anyone who's interested in YBF, what should they do to reach out? Well, listen, you can reach out through any number of ways. Uh, we're all really active on social. Uh, this podcast is, you know, our commitment to getting out there and, and being heard and being visible. We're all on LinkedIn. Um, we have a website. Our, our contacts are all on that. I'd say just reach out. Uh, just come in and see us if you're in town or send us an email or any other, any other way you want. Um, we're here. That's great. And uh, Farley, I, I learned a lot of new things from, from you today on this okay. podcast. So, you know, you can always expect a nice surprise. Um, <laughs> so thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks, and Jason. Um, for listeners out there, stay tuned um, to watch how YBF continues to grow. Thanks great. for listening. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe to it in all the usual places. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Talk to you soon.